our lives, certainly we have been taught the ABCs of various things. That term has been used to describe the method of learning various things. We need to learn our ABCs. Literally, we need to learn our ABCs, the language. But it's also been applied to other things, the ABCs of certain topics. Well, this morning we're going to look not at the ABCs of, of a very important biblical subject, but we're simply going to look at the B's, not the ABCs. The subject is baptism, and it is an unnecessarily controversial subject. And I stress unnecessarily controversial. It's unnecessarily controversial, controversial because the Bible is very clear on this subject. But man has complicated the issue by his persistent insistence that baptism has little or nothing to do with one's salvation. And this thinking has even infiltrated the Lord's church and affected those among us who at one time contended strongly for the essentiality of baptism, but who no longer contend strongly for its essentiality. What has changed? Has what the Bible teaches about it changed? Well, no, we know that hasn't occurred. Therefore, the change must have been with men. But this morning, we're going to go back to a very basic study of baptism under the heading of the five B's of baptism. And I believe when we have gone through these five B's, if you will, as I like to look at it, of baptism, if we're completely honest with ourselves, we will conclude that this should not be a controversial subject, but that the New Testament is abundantly clear as to what is taught on baptism in the New Testament. First of all, baptism is a burial. That's our first B. And it is clearly proved by the passages we have on the screen, Romans 6, 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul, writing to those who had been baptized, that is, to those who had become Christians, he wrote these words, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now notice verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism. That's it. We were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead, even so we also should rise to walk in newness of life. And so we were buried with him through baptism. And thus Paul asserts that baptism is clearly a burial. Now if you look in the dictionary, of course, Webster or any other dictionary would define baptism by various modes of baptism. The Bible knows nothing of modes of baptism. And those modes of baptism, by popular definition, present-day popular definition, would include an immersion or burial, but would also include pouring or sprinkling as so-called modes of baptism. But again, the Bible knows nothing 
about baptism in terms of its form. Other than that, it is a burial. That is reaffirmed by the same writer of Romans over in the Colossian letter, where Paul there writes in verses 12 and 13 of Colossians chapter 2, buried with him in baptism. Again, he's writing as he was to the Romans. He's writing to those who had undergone that burial. In other words, he's writing to those who are now Christians. And going back to verse 11, he says, In him, that is in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, a figurative expression, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. That's when he comes to verse 12 and tells us how they had done that. How had they done it? Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who also raised him from the dead. And so in both these passages, it is abundantly clear that baptism is a burial as it is defined in the New Testament. In fact, the word itself means to immerse or to dip or to plunge. That's the meaning of the word in the original. The King James translators did not really translate the word, the verb form, baptizo, when they translated the King James Version 1611. They transliterated it. They transliterated it and just simply brought it over and made it baptism, baptizo, baptism. Had they translated it rather than transliterating it, they would have translated it to immerse or plunge or dip, to overwhelm. In other words, that's the meaning of the word in the original language in which the New Testament was written. But we don't have to know that when we can see passages like Romans 6, 3, and 4 and Colossians 2, 12, and 13 where the Apostle Paul says, buried with him through baptism or buried with him in baptism. And so that clears it up. Any baptism other than a burial, is not Bible baptism. It is not baptism that is defined and described nor practiced in the New Testament. So our first of the five B's reminds us that baptism is a burial. And secondly, we are reminded that baptism is for believers. Now there are those, in fact, the vast majority of those who contend that you need to be baptized at all, will tell you that, yeah, that's right, baptism is for believers. That is, once you've been a saved, become a saved believer, then you're baptized. No, that's not what I mean by believers here. Baptism is for those who, what, are capable of belief. That is, it is not for infants. It is not for those who are incapable of expressing their faith in Christ. It is for those who are capable of believing. Little children are innocent. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Mark 16, 16. Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So one of the prerequisites for salvation, as Jesus mentions it in that passage, one of the prerequisites is belief. You have got to be able to believe. You've got to be capable of having faith. That's very clear, isn't it? In Acts 8 and verse 12, when Philip went down to Samaria, preaching the gospel to those at Samaria, notice what verse 12 tells us. But when they, that is those in Samaria, when they believed Philip, 
as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, listen to it, both men and women were baptized. Both men and women were baptized. Where are the children who were baptized? There were no children who were baptized because children were not subject and never have been nor never will they be subject to baptism. That is, those who are still in their innocence as infants are not subjects of baptism because a prerequisite is belief and little children are incapable of expressing that belief. Beyond that, Jesus used children as examples of innocence and humility. Children are not born in sin. That's the Calvinistic theory, isn't it? Calvinism teaches total hereditary depravity, that little children are born in sin. That's how infant baptism had its beginning, because it was contended that because little children are born in sin, then that sin must be removed by baptism. And they didn't bury them, they simply sprinkled or poured a little water on their head, supposedly to remove that sin. But children are not born in sin. Children are innocent. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, you see the emphasis that Jesus gave to that sweet innocence of little children. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Jesus, as we said, used children as examples of the kind of purity that we are to obtain if we are to be pleasing to God. Why would he use little children in that way if little children are born in sin? They're not born in sin. They're born innocent. And only when they reach an age where they are accountable and capable of belief and disbelief and enter into sin are they subjects of baptism. Baptism is a burial, and secondly, it is for believers. But here's a very key B. <laughs> baptism is before forgiveness. Baptism is before, not after, but before forgiveness of sins. That's the real point of contention, isn't it, today? Tragically, unnecessarily so in the religious world. Because the vast majority of those in the denominational world will tell you, no, you are baptized after you are saved. Well, what about Acts 2.38? The first time the gospel was preached on Pentecost Day, a part of Peter's sermon is recorded there, the culmination of which is, Therefore, verse 36, let it, all the house of Israel know assuredly that he has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Did they believe at that point what they had heard? Yes. And now they wanted to know, what more do I need to do? The vast majority of those tragically in the religious world today would say nothing more. You've already believed. Now you're saved. Now you can be baptized if you want to be, and that's a good thing to do. 
Some would even say it's a commandment, but not a necessary commandment, which obviously is illogical. But Peter didn't say that. Peter told those who had expressed their faith in Christ, there's more you need to do. Here it is. Repent. Change your mind about the way you've been living. Change your mind about the sin in which you have been living and now are, and be baptized. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that is by his authority, for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the forgiveness of sins. For, little word, very big meaning. And what is that meaning? In order to have, in order to obtain. In order to have remission or forgiveness of sins, you must be baptized. So said Peter, the first time the gospel was preached, when the keys to the kingdom that Jesus promised to Peter and the other apostles in Matthew 16, 18, when those keys figuratively, meaning the terms of admission, were first announced the first time, what was involved? Baptism. For, in order to have forgiveness of sins. Now, as we said, denominations will tell you for the most part that for doesn't mean for. In other words, it doesn't mean in order to obtain. What it means is because of. And so what Peter was saying was repent and let every one of you be baptized because your sins have already been forgiven. Now be baptized. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. For means because of. If it means because of in relation to baptism, it would have to mean because of in relation to repentance. Because repent and be baptized are co-joined equally. So whatever, whatever for means, it relates not only to baptism, but it relates to repentance. If for means because of in relation to baptism, it has to mean because of in relation to repentance. So repent because you've already repented which makes absolutely no sense. Repent because you've already been forgiven. You've been forgiven, but now you need to repent. Who would dare contend that a person can be forgiven of sins before he repents of sins? While he's still living in sin with no intention of repenting of it, he can still be forgiven of it? Just by his faith alone? No. Indeed, for means in order to have. Repent in order to have forgiveness of sins, be baptized in order to have forgiveness of sins. Both repentance and baptism lead to, point to, result in forgiveness of sins. But let me take you to one more phrase that will enable you to conclude very clearly, if there's any doubt at all, that this is the case. The phrase for the remission of sins, in Acts 2.38, is used elsewhere, word for word. And that elsewhere is Matthew 26.28. And that's where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And in instituting the Lord's Supper, after the Passover, what did he say concerning the fruit of the vine, which represented his blood? He said, of that fruit of the vine, 
For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the what? For the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. Acts 2.38, for the remission of sins. The exact same phrase is used. And it means exactly the same thing. If not, why not? And if in Acts 2.38, for the remission of sins means because of remission of sins, it has to mean because of remission of sins in Matthew 26.28. And if it does, then you have Jesus saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many because sins have already been remitted. In other words, I'm going to shed my blood, but your sins will have already been forgiven before I shed my blood. That's an impossibility, isn't it? He shed his blood in order to forgive sins. And so because of remission of sins cannot possibly apply to either Acts 2.38 nor to Matthew 26.28. Baptism comes before, not after, forgiveness of sins. And a reinforcement of that is our next B, which is that baptism is the birth of the Christian. That's when the Christian is born. That's when he becomes a Christian. Because that is simultaneous with forgiveness of sins. Becoming a Christian is simultaneous with having one's sins forgiven. And baptism is where one's sins are forgiven, and therefore that's where the Christian comes into being. That's where he is born. And that's what Jesus told Nicodemus as John records that exchange between Nicodemus and Jesus in John chapter 3. Jesus said to him in verse 3 of John 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus did not initially understand what Jesus was saying. Because Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And in verse 5, Jesus clarified that for Nicodemus. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In John 3, 5, Jesus explained further what he meant in John 3, 3. Being born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. To be born of something is to come forth from it, isn't it? A baby is born of its mother. It's begotten by its father born of its mother. When Jesus says one must be born of water, he means one must come forth from water. That's the new birth. And when he says, and the Spirit, that is how he learns to be born of water, by the teaching of the Spirit. The teaching of the Spirit tells one to be born again, be born of water. So one is born of water according to the teaching of the Spirit. We can reinforce that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That is that it's by the teaching of the Spirit that one is born of water. Listen to how Paul words it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at verse 13. Writing to Christians, he says to them, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now listen, born of water and the Spirit, John 3, 5. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. What baptism is that? can't be Holy Spirit baptism. It's the same baptism that Jesus referred to in John 3, 5 when he says, born of water and the spirit. Here, Paul says, by the teaching of one spirit, you were all baptized, born of water. You were all baptized, and then he says, into one 
body. And oh, how important that is. It's not just a question of being baptized, but a question of being baptized into one body. But what is that body? The body is the church. Now go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And come with me through Ephesians to some key passages that clearly identify that one body as being the church of Christ. The church belonging to Christ. The New Testament church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him, that is Christ, to be head over all things, listen to it, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Remember Paul said, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Is that one body the church? Absolutely. That's what Paul says. Gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Same writer in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says you were baptized into that body. Into that body or into bodies, plural? No, one body. Ephesians 4 will tell us that in just a moment. But let's go to Ephesians 2, first of all, and look at the importance of the body, the church, in the reconciliation process that brings man back to God. In Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, Paul there writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made both, that's Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, that's the Old Testament, it's been taken out of the way, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now listen to verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both, that's Jew and Gentile, all men, reconcile them both to God in one body. What is the one body? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 has already said the one body is the church. We're reconciled to God in one body. Therefore, we're reconciled to God in the church through the cross. People want to separate the cross from the church. Ephesians 2 says you can't separate the cross from the church because Jesus died on the cross in order to establish his church in which all men must be reconciled to God in that one body. Ephesians 2, specifically at verse 16. And how many bodies? Again, Ephesians 4 and verse 4. Paul affirms there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. How many gods are there? How many are, how many gods? How many gods? One God. How many spirits? One. How many Christs? How many lords? How many Christs? One. How many churches? Oh, people will say, many. Many churches. No. No. Paul, by inspiration, said, there's one church, just as there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. There's one body. And where are the saved? 
in that one body. The final passage at which we look in Ephesians is Ephesians 5.23. And there Paul writes, For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. What body is Christ going to save? His body. What is that body? The church. How many churches? One. Who's the head of it? Christ. How are men reconciled to God? Through the cross? Yes. Separate the cross from the church? No. Ephesians 2.16. By the cross in one body. That's the reconciliation process. And so baptism is the birth of the Christian. That's when he's born. And he's born into the body. He's born into the body of Christ, which is the church, added thereto by the Lord himself. And our final B is that baptism is where the blood is applied. Without the shedding of blood, the Hebrews writer affirms, there is no remission of sins. There has to be the shedding of blood. Christ shed his blood on the cross. But the mere shedding of that blood doesn't save us. We have to appropriate that blood. We have to come into contact with that blood. How has God designated that we come into contact with that blood? Well, John 19.34 says the blood was shed in his death. Remember, as the soldiers came to the crosses of those three who hung there, Jesus being there among those two thieves, they broke the legs of the thieves to hasten their death before the Sabbath. But when they came to Jesus... They discovered he was already dead and in fulfillment of prophecy not a bone of his body was broken but the soldier took a spear and thrust it into his side and there came out blood and water. In his death the blood was shed. The passage at which we looked in our first point Romans 6, 3 and 4 says it's in the likeness of that death when we're buried with him in baptism that we reach that blood. In the likeness of his death we reach that blood. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, verse 4 to gain the context, John writes, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You cannot be free from your sins unless you're washed in his blood. But when does that take place? We have a beautiful example of it, don't we, in Acts 22 and verse 16 where Paul is recounting his own conversion when Ananias came to him there and said, And now why are you waiting? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and what? Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Where is it then that our sins are washed away? In baptism, because in baptism, in that burial, the blood is applied. The blood is applied in baptism. Not one minute before, but in that burial. That's why it's absolutely crucial 
that we be baptized based upon a belief that leads us to repent and as the New Testament teaches to confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. How often do we sing, what can wash away my sins? And the answer comes ringing forth in that great old hymn, nothing but the blood of Jesus. But that blood is applied in baptism. And so let us not forget the five B's of baptism. Baptism is a burial. It is for believers, that is those who are capable of belief. It comes not after but before forgiveness. It is the birth of the Christian born again, born into the body of Christ, the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's absolutely essential because only in baptism the blood is reached. A burial for believers before forgiveness, constituting the birth of the Christian where the blood of Jesus is applied. If you haven't done those things, we plead with you to do so this morning, fully understanding the commitment that you make, the church, the body to which you will be added by the Lord himself, and the commitment that you make by so doing to rise to walk in newness of life until the Lord comes again or until you die, whichever occurs first. If there's someone here who has done those things but no longer walks in the light, as he is in the light, come home to the light in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly. As we stand to sing, will you come?